Welcome to the Beacon Broadcast from Beacon Baptist Church in Burlington, North Carolina, featuring expositional Bible teaching by Pastor Greg Barkman. If you'd like to correspond with the Beacon Broadcast, or if you wish to support this radio ministry, write to The Beacon Broadcast, Post Office Box 159, Alamance, North Carolina, 27201, or find us on the web at beaconbaptist.com beaconbaptist.com The Beacon Broadcast is supported in part by the gifts of faithful listeners. Now with today's message from God's Word, here is Greg Barkman. We have been studying the Gospel of John verse by verse in our Sunday radio series that you have been listening to, I trust. Most of you are regular listeners who listen to it week by week, though it may very well be that we have some listeners today who are not regulars, but in either case, we welcome you. But I'm just uh, informing you also that we have been in an extended study in the Gospel of John, and we have come into chapter 17, Christ's High Priestly Prayer, But today, we are going to set that series aside briefly as we focus upon one of the great incarnation prophecies found in the book of Isaiah. And I'm referring to Isaiah 9, 6, which reads, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom, to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from this time forward, even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Well, I actually read verses 6 and 7. They go together. But this is a marvelous, marvelous text. It is indeed a Christmas prophecy. It is foretelling the coming of the Christ, the Messiah, the one that God said would be sent to deliver his people from their sins. But it also tells us something else about his nature, about his person, about his rule. And that is what we're going to focus on today. So thank you for joining us, and thank you, those of you who help us financially, and we do need that help, and we appreciate your consideration, and we would also appreciate your prayerful consideration of sending a special year-end gift for the financial needs of the Beacon Broadcast. Well, the text begins by talking about the birth of Christ. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. That is indeed information about the birth of the promised Messiah. This prophecy told to King Ahaz, who was looking for deliverance from his political enemies, 
who were at that very time sending an army to march upon his kingdom. And he, in distress, was looking around to other nations who might be willing to align themselves with him to defend his country in this time of crisis. And God sent the prophet Isaiah to him to say, Ahaz, don't trust in other nations. Don't trust in men. Don't trust in armies. Don't trust in weapons, but trust in the Lord God, the living God, who is able to defeat every army. And you should know from your own history how many times God delivered his people with, in some cases, just a handful who defeated thousands, tens of thousands who had come against them. God is able to make one man put a thousand to flight, the Bible tells us. And so Isaiah says to King Ahaz, don't trust in men, trust in God. And if you will trust in God, God will deliver you. And then this promise, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and so forth. This was a promise to Ahaz that a deliverer would be sent by God to deliver him from his political enemies if he would trust in God. But it is a much bigger promise than that. It looks beyond the immediate crisis in Judah, beyond the problem that was facing King Ahaz. It looks beyond the problem of wars and temporary crises upon the earth, and it looks to a far bigger problem, namely the need for redemption for mankind. For all men have sinned and come short of the glory of God, and the wages of sin is death, and the soul that sinneth it shall die. And how shall men and women be rescued from this great judgment that is coming upon all who have sinned against Almighty God? And the answer is, God has promised a deliverer. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. That first phrase speaks about the humanity of the promised deliverer. Unto us a child is born. That speaks of a human being being born in the normal way. A child is born, and we know from the fulfillment of this promise that the child is Jesus and the mother is Mary and the child was born in Bethlehem and was born in very unusual and and um, we might say difficult circumstances as he was born away from his home, was born in, in a uh, stable, in a manger, the lowliest possible of, of births that this one had, this one uh, experienced. And yet, all of this speaks of his humanity. The deliverer that God sent is a human being who has been sent to rescue other human beings. Unto us a child is born. But the verse goes on to tell us something that points to someone that is greater than a human being, that is more than a human being, for not only shall a child be born, but a son is given. Now, at first glance, you may not see the significance of that, but think about it for a moment. Anything that is given had to exist before it was given. 
The child began in his humanity when he was conceived in the womb of his virgin mother Mary. That was the child's beginning. He did not exist in a, the form of a human child until that time. But a son is not born, a son is given. That means the son existed before he was given. A gift exists before the one who is the possessor of that gift gives it to someone else. And the son is given means that the son existed before the child was conceived. The son is none other than the son of God. You will call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. This son is the eternal son of God. He had no beginning. He is eternal. He is everlasting. That is almost impossible for our minds to conceive because our experience is that everything had a beginning, and that is true except for God. God had no beginning. He has always existed. Can you fathom that? Can you think of that? When your mind races, looks, focuses, thinks back over the, what shall we call it, the centuries, the millennium, the, the, the millions, the billions of, of years, however many there have been, and we normally think of that in terms of its relationship to the universe in which we live. And I'm not suggesting that I believe that the universe is billions of years old necessarily, but I'm just saying that when we think about eternity, we can only think in terms of a long time. <laughs> we can't get outside of the concept of time. But God is timeless. God is eternal. And the Son has always existed as the Son. God has always existed in three persons. He is a triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the Son, we usually call him the second member of the Trinity, the Son was given by the Father. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. So, in this text, we read both of the humanity and the deity of this promised deliverer. Unto us, a child is born. That's Jesus. Unto us, a son is given. That's the eternal word. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory as of the glory of the Father. What wonderful mysteries are these, but all of that foretold by the prophet Isaiah hundreds of years before Jesus was born. But I'm going to move on to another aspect of this deliverer, something that is highlighted in this particular text in a very, very striking way, because it goes on to say, and the government will be upon his shoulder. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and peace. There will be no end. And I stop at that point. All of us, I think, are interested in human government to some degree. 
in other words, politics, to some degree, because we understand how greatly those who rule over us affect our lives for good or for ill. But likewise, most of us who have lived any length of time are discouraged with politics because we have learned that no matter who controls the reins of government, things never seem to turn out the way we hoped. People who put their hopes on a different president, a different Congress. If we could just get the, the other guys elected, then everything would change. But somehow it doesn't change much. Oh, yes, there are little changes, but nothing that's very significant. And if we get our guys, our guys, the ones that we favor into office, then we blame all of their failures and inabilities to do what we hoped that they would do on the other guys who hinder them in some way. And back and forth and back and forth and back and forth it goes. And promises are made and ideals are anticipated and they seldom materialize. And so it would seem that the burden of government is too great for any human being, no matter how sincere, no matter how capable they may be, which is why this text in Isaiah 9, 6 and 7 is so encouraging. For several statements about the promised Messiah point to his capacity as the ruler who shoulders the burden of human government perfectly. We've never had one like that before. And so though we generally at this time of year focus upon the birth, Christmas is the celebration of the birth of Jesus, the birth to Mary, the child who was born to Mary. But we should also think about who this one is and what he has promised to do. What a wonderful promise it is. This one, this deliverer as the perfect ruler, for the government shall be upon his shoulder. And so he is the capable rule ruler. The government shall be upon his shoulder. He will bear the burden of governing this world. That's what that word picture is saying to us. The government shall be upon his shoulder. He's going to bear the load of human government. And that actually was prophesied before Isaiah mentioned this in Isaiah 9.6. It really goes back all the way to Genesis 49.10 and announced the coming of this one who finally came and ha now has come and lived and died and rose again and ascended back to heaven and is waiting to come again to fulfill this part of the prophecy. The first part has been fulfilled. Unto us a child is born, he has been born. Unto us a son is given, he has been given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. Well, there certainly is a sense in which he is even now ruling in heaven above, and yet the governments of this earth are, are continuing on their sinful ways, their covetous ways, their hostile ways, their, their um, proudful, prideful ways, and it's, we just don't see a good human government, and never shall, as long as government is in the hands of fallen sons and daughters of Adam. But there has been promised a ruler 
who will have the government upon his shoulder. He who is the ruler of the material world. When he walked upon the earth in his first coming, many of his miracles demonstrated his authority over nature. He controls the natural part of this world. The storm is raging, and he says, Peace be still, and instantly there's a great calm. That doesn't happen in the natural world. Even when the storm blows over, it, the waves subside gradually, not instantly. But at his command, the waves obey and stop. In other ways, he controlled nature. He turns water into wine. And on and on it goes. He is the ruler of the material world. He turns, he multiplies bread and fish because he is the ruler of the material world. He walks on water, physically and scientifically impossibly possible. But of course, he who made it can do it. And so he walks on water. He throws a, or tells Peter to, to uh, throw a line into the water to catch a fish and in that fish's mouth is a coin. And he tells the disciples to throw their nets on the other side. And they who were professional fishermen who fished all night and caught nothing suddenly have so many fish that their nets can't hold them. Yes, he's the ruler of the material world. But he's also the ruler of the spirit world. Angels, spirit beings, announced his birth and claimed his glory. Angels. Worship and serve him, the writer of Hebrews tells us. Demons, fallen angels, also of the spirit world, obeyed his voice and had to. They had to obey his command. As much as they disliked it, as much as they willed not to do it, they ex when they exercised their will, it was contrary to obeying him. But when he commanded them to obey, they obeyed because all authority has been given unto him, this capable ruler, upon whose shoulder the government shall be. Yes, he's ruler both of time and eternity. He is the everlasting father of the ages, of eternity, we are told in Micah 5, 2, and in Revelation 1, 7, and 8. Of his kingdom, there will be no end, time and eternity. So we read in Luke 1.30, Well, there's never been a kingdom like this kingdom. He is the ruler of the material world. He is the ruler of the spirit world. He is the ruler of time and eternity. He is the ruler of life and death. He controls life. He controls death. He has the keys of death and hell in his hands. There's no government like this ever before. And he is the rightful ruler of men's hearts. His healing works demonstrate, his miracles demonstrate his ability to heal the soul. In fact, in a very real sense, his miracles all pointed to spiritual truths, spiritual realities for those who had eyes to see them. He who can heal a lame man can also heal a spiritually lame person. He who can cause a blind man to see can also cause the spiritually blind to see. And so he tells us that he's the rightful ruler of men's hearts. 
And in order to come into his kingdom, you must be born again. He controls the door to the kingdom. And to be saved by this one means that you become a citizen of his kingdom, living your life under his sovereign rule, obeying his righteous precepts. Yes, the government shall be on his shoulder. But not only is he the capable ruler, he's also the wise ruler, because the text goes on to say, he is, his name shall be called, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, Wonderful Counselor. That's not so much a proper name as it is a description of his attributes, his character, his identity. The Wonderful Counselor. Who or what is a counselor? A counselor is one who tells you how to solve a problem. And sometimes we are glad to have counselors. Sometimes we see our need of counselors and go to people to give us counsel. Well, he is the wonderful counselor. He never misses. He never misguides. He never directs you in a wrong, wrong way. He is the wonderful counselor. There is both good and bad counsel, as we know in this world. There are counselors who counsel, though they do not understand the problem. There are counselors who counsel, though they do not have the wisdom to counsel in the areas that they sometimes try to offer counsel. There are counselors who purposely mislead by bad counsel because they don't have good motives. But never this one. He is the wonderful counselor, the good counselor, the perfect counselor, the counselor that we can always rely upon. God is the perfect counselor, and God's counsel is based upon his perfect character. And this one who is God come in the flesh is the wonderful counselor. Who needs a counselor? Those who are ignorant. The children's catechism says, why do you need Christ as a prophet? And the answer is because I am ignorant. Surely we believe and agree that no one in this world, among the sons and daughters of men, no one knows everything. No king, no president, no judge, no professor, no one knows everything. Everyone has a mixture of knowledge and ignorance. And the greatest ignorance is ignorance of God, who created everything. All are ignorant until taught by God. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And here are myriads of human counselors who are puffed up in the misguided notion that they have wisdom, they have knowledge, they are trained, they are educated, they have letters after their name to indicate the education which they have received, and yet sometimes these very people are the most foolish of all, the most ignorant of all, the most lacking in common sense of nearly anyone. Well, the, the truth of the matter is, among the family of <laughs> of men and women who are descendants of Adam, which is everybody in the world, every human being, we are all unwise at times. We can't pit 
the uh, what would I say? The wise farmer, the wise uh, granny who only went to eight grades above the PhD. We we like to do that sometimes. Point out the folly of the educated person and the common sense of the of the uneducated person, as if the uneducated person is the one who really knows everything. But no, nobody knows everything. That's the point. Except this one, this wise ruler, this wonderful counselor. He's wonderful because he knows everything, and so he is able to counsel the weak. He's able to counsel those who are mired in their sins. He's able to counsel those who are accused of a crime, who are under the sentence of death. He is able to point every one in the right direction every time, every time, without any error, without any mistake, without any misguidance. He is the wonderful counselor. Jesus is the wonderful counselor. Why? Because he's wonderful. That term in the Bible always refers to God, never to men. It means extraordinary, beyond the realm of human ability, defying human understanding. He is wonderful. He is the wonderful counselor, the counselor who is perfect in his wonders. Great God of wonders, all thy ways are matchless, godlike, and divine. In fact, the greatest wonder of all is the wonder of the Incarnation. How can that be that the infinite becomes an infinite infant? How can it be that the miracle worker becomes the miracle? How can it be that sinners can be saved? But that's a testimony to Jesus as the wonderful counselor. Nobody else can make that happen, but he can. He understands our problems and he accomplished the perfect plan to deal with our greatest need. He is indeed the wonderful counselor. And he is a counselor in salvation as well as every aspect of life. And salvation is a wonder. In every aspect, this wonderful counselor has brought salvation. Redemption is a wonder that has been accomplished by the wonderful counselor. Regeneration is a wonder which has been given to us and continues to be given to mankind over and over again by this wonderful counselor. Justification is a wonder. How can that be? How can a holy, righteous God who cannot overlook and ex or excuse sin, how can he justify the ungodly, but he is both just and justifier because of this wonderful counselor who has been promised. The gospel itself is a wonder. It's such a wonder that many of the most educated men in this world cannot understand it until the wonderful counselor reveals it to them. Yes, the government shall be upon the shoulder of this one. Hallelujah. I'm glad for that. I, I expect you will be as well. Here is hope. This wonderful counselor has come, and actually his kingdom is now, and it is entered by faith in his person and work, 
and we can enjoy its benefits in our lives today, even while we await the finality, the fullness of it, at his second coming. His kingdom is now, and he is taking subjects into his kingdom every day, all across the world. But his kingdom is coming, and we press toward it, we look for it, and we long for it, we pray for its coming. His kingdom is future, that kingdom of perfect righteousness, when when righteousness shall cover the world like the waters cover the sea. Do you know this one who governs? Not the one you can govern, but the one who governs you and everything. Does he govern your life? This is the one that we remember. This is the one that we worship at this glorious time of year. Until next week at this same time, this is Greg Barkman saying good day. May God give you his eternal peace.